Well, greetings, brethren, and a warm Sabbath greetings to all of you. Here in Charlotte, it's wonderful to talk to you, and welcome to our brothers and sisters in the Gulf Coast. We're glad that you can be with us here today as well. Brethren, I'm going to talk to you about a subject that I've been thinking about for the last several months. In fact, as we approached the Passover a couple of months ago, as I was reviewing the gospel accounts, once again, going through the gospels, looking at the words of Jesus Christ, looking at his example, this particular subject really jumped out at me more than it had in previous years. And so I actually wrote most of this sermon actually around the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, thinking, well, maybe I'll use it in a year or so. But as I think about it, I think the topic applies to our lives today and can be helpful to all of us today. Brethren, I'd like you to ask yourself some of the following questions, or as I start with these questions, let them hit you personally. Young people, this is for you as well, so please be listening. Please try and think about how what we're talking about today impacts you, your life, your thoughts, and your emotions. Brethren, here's the first question. How much do you think and act like Jesus Christ. In fact, let's place that on ourselves. How much do I think and act like Jesus Christ? It's definitely one to ponder over after services as well. Another question, how concerned am I about people in God's church? How concerned am I about people in God's church? Another question, how concerned am I about people who live in the world and who do profess to worship Jesus Christ. We might call them worldly Christians. How concerned am I about them, about their lives, about what's going on with them? Here's another question. How concerned am I about people in the world who know nothing about Jesus Christ? How concerned am I about people in the world who know nothing about Jesus Christ? They may be agnostic. They may be Hindu or Buddhists or Muslims. Another question, and I think you see where this is going. How concerned am I about people in the world who hate the idea of Jesus Christ? How concerned am I about people in the world who hate the idea of Jesus Christ and who literally hate Jesus Christ? And then a final question here as we start, where do I draw the line with my concern for others? Do I draw the line with my concern for others? And if so, where do I draw the line for others? At what point have people crossed the line and I'm no longer concerned about them? Brethren, my purpose today is to talk to you as first fruits. We heard about that last week at the Feast of Pentecost, didn't we? We're reminded of the fact that we are God's elect. We are his called out ones here at the end of the age. We are the ones he calls first fruits, the ones he has designated to work with now, to change, to help overcome, to commission to preach the gospel of the world or the kingdom of God to the world as a witness now, so that in the kingdom, when Christ returns, we can help him change the world. I'm speaking to you in that way today. You are God's first fruits. We are God's first fruits. We must not forget who we are. 
and what we have been called for, and that we've been called to come out of the world, and that our citizenship, as Paul says in Philippians, is not here. It's in heaven. We're citizens of, as Paul says in Hebrews, a heavenly country. That's the seat that you're sitting in today as I speak to you. Remember that as we go through this today. Brethren, my purpose today is to review several examples of the compassion that Jesus Christ showed toward humanity and to challenge each of us to develop even more of this Christ-like compassion. We're called to be like him. And so we're going to examine him and his life. If you're looking for a title to the sermon today, I've entitled it Developing the Compassion of Christ. Developing the Compassion of Christ. Let's go to Philippians chapter 2 to begin with today. And we'll look at some comments that the Apostle Paul made to the church at Philippi. What's interesting is that this is one of Paul's prison epistles. One of the letters that Paul wrote while he was imprisoned in Rome for about a two-year period. In fact, if we think about it, and this is important, we need to think about the context and the condition that Paul was in. He wrote the book of Philippians roughly 62 to 60 A.D., about 10 years before the revolt in 70 A.D., the revolt against the Romans, where the Romans then turned around and went after the Jews. We need to remember that Jews in general at this point in the empire were a subjugated people by the Romans. They were a looked down upon people by the Romans. And here, God's church, the Christians, were looked down upon by the Jews. They were put down by the Jews. They were seen as heretics by the Jews. Paul was in prison in Rome because the Jews tried to kill him. And he appealed to Caesar. Paul is under house arrest in Rome because of this. And we might think from a human perspective, Paul would have had every right to be angry, to stand up, to get other people to rally to his side, to show how the injustice was going out upon him. Yet what do we see in Paul's prison epistles, the letters that he wrote in prison? We see admonition and encouragement. And Philippians, brethren, is probably one of the most encouraging books in the Bible when you break it down. If you haven't looked through and read the book of Philippians recently, I encourage you to do that. Maybe this afternoon, this evening, tomorrow morning. Meditate on what's there for us, because it's written for us as God's first fruits. Okay, Philippians chapter 2. And... We'll start reading in verse 4, Philippians 2, verse 4. Paul wrote, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So think beyond yourself. Look to the needs and the interests of others. And then he says in verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let Christ's mind be in you. Develop Christ's mind. Think like he thinks. Feel like he feels. That's what Paul's getting to here with these concepts. It says, be, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. No, he understood who he was. He was the individual who was known as the Word. He's the Lord, the eternal of the Old Testament. He knew who he was. 
And he didn't feel it wrong to know and understand and claim that. But let's go on here. He made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He emptied himself. He came to the earth as a human being. And he was looked down upon his whole life, wasn't he? We, we looked into this and we spent time studying this at the Passover just a couple of months ago. But this is instructive as we think about who we are and who we're called to be like. Think about what Christ was willing to do, what he did in his life, who he tried to help, and how he didn't push back. A couple of months ago in March, Mr. Richard Ames gave a sermon entitled, Ten Ways to Love One Another. Ten Ways to Love One Another. That sermon is on the web. If you go to the lcg.org website, type in 10 ways and it'll pull up the sermon. Way number six that he talked about, one of the ways to love one another, is compassion. And he made the point twice in his sermon. He touched on compassion twice in that sermon. When I heard that sermon, I had just finished actually writing this sermon. And it, it struck me because it was something I had really been spending time with. What's the re what is the reality about Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry? It's that during his earthly ministry, brethren, Christ had compassion on many different people that he helped and he healed. And we're going to take the rest of the sermon today to look at examples of that Christly compassion. And as we do that, I want you and I want all of us to think about, okay, how does that level of compassion fit me in my mind, in my outlook, in my heart? Because brethren, as first fruits, we're called to have the same perspective, to develop the same perspective. For those of us who are baptized, we have Christ's Holy Spirit living in us, Christ in us, helping us do this. If we're not baptized quite yet, Christ is working around us with his Holy Spirit. And we can still allow him to change us into Christ even more and to have that perspective. What is compassion? Let's define it quickly. Webster's online dictionary describes compassion as, note this, a sympathetic consciousness of others' distress. A sympathetic consciousness or awareness of others' distress, of their suffering, together with a desire to alleviate it. Compassion means we understand what people are suffering and going through. And we care so much that we want to change it. We yearn to change it. The Greek word for compassion used most frequently in the New Testament means, and I'm not going to pronounce it because it's a long Greek word and I will butcher it, but it means to be moved to one's bowels, hence to be moved with compassion, to have compassion. It says, for the bowels were thought to be the seat of love and pity. The way that we might say it today is cut to the heart or a heart going out for someone. And we'll see that in Jesus Christ's example here through the next several points. So what we're going to do now is we're going to talk about different ways compassion can be shown. And we're going to look at specific examples from Christ's ministry. We'll look at a number of these today. <clears throat> what I'd like all of us to do as we look at these examples is to think about our lives to think about struggles we might have, and to ask the question, could I do the same thing that Jesus Christ did? Or where might I need to change so I can be more like Jesus Christ as one of his first fruits? 
Okay, the first question I have for you, and I'm going to put these points in terms of questions. The first question is, how do we feel when we see people in the world who are spiritually lost, living lives without meaning and purpose? How do we feel about spiritually lost individuals who are living lives, lives but they're, they're living lives without any meaning or purpose or without any deep meaning or purpose? Let's go to Matthew chapter 9. We're going to spend a good bit of time in the Gospels today and a good bit of time in Matthew as well. Matthew chapter 9, and we'll start reading in, I think it's verse 35, Matthew 9, 35, as we think about this question in Christ's compassion for those who didn't know the way, who didn't have true meaning in their lives. Matthew 9.35, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. He's preaching to Jews here. He's preaching to people who did know there was a God who created all things. They did understand the Ten Commandments. He's even preaching in their synagogue. So, in a sense, they weren't completely without hope and completely without perspective and purpose. Yet, let's continue reading here. Teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. He was moved from his bowels with them. He felt this deep longing inside because he recognized what they were missing and he was hoping for them that they could have more meaning. Think about who he was. Who was the Christ? He was the Word. He was the one who spoke and earth existed. He was the one who formed man, Adam, out of the dust of the ground. He was the one that did this and took a rib and formed Eve. He was the one who helped design humanity for a purpose, an eternal purpose. And so he looked at them and he felt moved with compassion for them because they were weary and they were scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Why? To help these people who are aimless, so to speak. To help these individuals who are weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. How do we look at people who are spiritually lost, living lives without meaning and purpose? Look around the world. We see it all over the place. We see it in so many young people today who don't really have a purpose or a cause. And that's one of the things we see in the millennial generation is one of the things they long for is to get into a cause, something that means something. They want to be part of something. And that's why movements pull young people in and have for eons. Because young people long to be part of something that has meaning, meaning bigger than them. And of course, we're part of something like that in God's church. We're called to take God's truth the good news of his coming kingdom of God to the world as a witness to share it with them. But the world misses this so much. Brethren, how do we think about these individuals? Do we have compassion for them? Do we long for a time when they can know the truth? 
Their minds can be open and they can be part of this plan. Brethren, this, this should be one of our major motives for preaching the gospel of the kingdom to the world. Wanting to share God's good news with them. Wanting to share the fact that Jesus Christ died for them so that their sins can be forgiven, no matter what they've done. Wanting to share the truth and let them know this world is going down the tubes, but something better is coming. Christ is going to return and, and create a new if we don't preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, we don't have compassion for the world. We've got to do that today. That should motivate us. So I encourage you, think about that topic. Think about the question. Examine yourself on this. How do we feel about a world who is spiritually lost? Do we hurt for them, as Jesus Christ did? Do we long for them to know the truth, to know enough about the truth that they can change their ways? Let me go to another question here. Number two, question number two, as we look at Christ's example of compassion and we analyze ourselves as first fruits. Question two, how do we feel when we see people in the world starving or even just hungry? How do we feel when we see hungry people, starving people around the world? Brethren, as I think most of you know, we don't even have to look outside the United States in our developed nations, to see people starving and hungry. They're here. Over the years, prior to coming to work for the church, I did a lot of work with <clears throat> uh, local, state, and the federal government, particularly in the area of education. Uh, one of the areas I worked with and sort of dabbled on the edges of was school food programs the breakfast and lunch programs that we have in our public schools. And I think some of you know this. If you've been listening to the news, you become more aware of it. But for a lot of our kids in public schools today, the school breakfast that they're served and the school lunch that they're served are the only nutritious meals they eat during the day. And in a number of cases, they're the only meals our kids eat during the day. There's no food at home even in the best of times. That's why you've seen during this lockdown crisis that there are many schools that are still cooking meals and they're sending out buses and teachers on buses to hand out food to kids that are stuck at home because we literally have kids that are starving in their homes. We have lots of hungry people in the world today and more and more as they get laid off from their jobs. We were looking at feet sites this week, and one of the convention centers we looked at had a huge exhibition hall. It would probably seat four or 5,000 people, and it was filled with food donations that they were packaging to send out to the local community because people here are starving. Of course, people are starving and have been all around the world. We, we throw around this number of a billion people every so often, that there are roughly a billion people in the world who are either hungry or starving. A lot of them live in north, northern Africa. And we know about the locust plagues that are hitting right now, not only in East Africa, in Pakistan, in Iran, and Afghanistan, but now into India. And it's moving into cities with hundreds of millions of people or excuse me, tens of millions of people, but it's affecting hundreds of millions of people in the region. And these locusts keep reproducing, and every time they reproduce, they increase by a factor of roughly 10. It's really powerful. 
How do we feel when we see hungry people, brethren? Let's look at Matthew chapter 15. And I know you're familiar with the scripture, but let's think about it in context. Meditate on it with me as we read about it. Matthew chapter 15, and we'll start reading in verse 30. Actually, verse 29. Matthew 15, verse 29. Jesus departed from there. He skirted the Sea of Galilee, and he went up onto a mountain, and he sat down there. I think some of you visited that place where he supposedly sat down and and fed the 4,000. Verse 30, Then the great multitudes came to him, having with them lame and blind and mute and maimed and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So certainly he was having compassion there. But let's go on, verse 31. So the multitude marveled, and when... They saw the mute speaking and the maimed made whole, the lame walking and the blind seeing. They glorified the God of Israel. An amazing time. Verse 32. Now Jesus called his disciples to himself and he said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Christ was a human being at this point, 30-some years of age. He knew what it was like to suffer hunger. He knew what it was like to feel a drop in blood sugar, to get dizzy because you're that hungry and you haven't eaten anything in a while. Christ made human beings. He knew that when they went away, they wouldn't die on their walk to the closest community to get something to eat. But he also didn't want them to suffer. He's a, he's a parent here, taking on that role, thinking about these people. He has compassion from the inside, from his kidneys, he's, and his, his, his heart. He's thinking, I don't want these people to have to go away feeling miserable. I want to help them. And so he goes on and he performs the miracle of the loaves and the fishes here feeding 4,000 men plus women and children, probably some 10,000 or more people. Think about it, brethren. God gives us the privilege in our own lives to develop this kind of compassion for the hungry, doesn't he? Think about your children, your grandchildren. We have these little babies that come here, and they're pretty helpless. And when they get hungry, they're miserable. And what do they do? They cry. When they're really small, they don't even know why they cry. They're miserable, and that's their response. And what does it do? It elicits compassion from mom and dad. And you want to feed your child, you want to put it out of its misery. As our children get a little bit older, our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, as they get a little bit older, they'll get to the age of two, three, four, five years old, and what happens when they get really hungry? They'll start to cry because they have this pain in their stomach. And it's, in some ways, it's a little comical to watch, but it's when, you're, when it's your own child, it's also disheartening where they're, they're holding their stomachs and they're saying, Mommy, Daddy, Grandma, Grandpa, feed me. I'm hungry. And what do we do? We don't laugh at them and say, Oh, you're not going to die, usually. We try and get them something. We don't want to watch our children and our grandchildren suffer. Even though waiting another hour or two is not going to kill them, they'll live right on through it. We have compassion because we want to put them out of their misery, 
We want to help them. We want to serve them. And that's the compassion we see here with Jesus Christ. The compassion of a father with his little children, knowing that they're suffering and wanting to put them out of that misery. Brethren, how do we see people starving around the world? We use the term, I said it a few minutes ago, of a billion people. Brethren, statistics can make us callous if we're not careful. I used to talk about this in my public health classes that I taught at the university level. We used a lot of statistics. And statistics can be powerful and telling. We're going to get to some more statistics from the books of the law of the gospels. But brethren, we have to think inside of the statistics and the numbers. Here are over four, excuse me, over yeah, 4,000 men plus women and children, roughly 10, 12,000 people maybe. What was it like for each of them to suffer? When we look at a billion people suffering from hunger and starvation around the world, what is that like? You've all fasted. You've gone to bed hungry intentionally. I know some of you grew up in environments where you went to bed hungry unintentionally as well. Do we think about the humanity behind the numbers? A billion people going to bed hungry, not being able to sleep through the night because the hunger wakes you up. If you've fasted for multiple days before, you know what that's like. The hunger will wake you up. You can't sleep because of that gnawing feeling in your stomach. How do we think about those people? How do we care about them? Do we pray for them? Do we let the statistics settle in our mind? Do we feel compassion from our bowels and from our heart for these people? Let's look at another example. Number three in question. How do you feel about people who owe you something? How do you feel about people who owe you something? Maybe people who owe you money. Maybe people who have stolen from you and taken from you. How do you look at them? How do we look at these individuals? Many of us have had this happen. How do we look at these folks? Matthew chapter 18 Turn over a page or two. Matthew chapter 18. Let's look at Christ's compassion. And he uses a parable here to teach us powerfully. We'll start reading here in verse 21 of Matthew 18. Peter came to to him, to Christ, and he said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? You know the story here, but let's let's make this story, this parable come alive. Some more brethren. How many times shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to 70 times, excuse me, up to seven times? Think about it. Think about somebody who's done you wrong. They've used you. Maybe they've stolen or taken from you. And they do it and then they come back and they say, I'm sorry. How many times do you let them off the hook? Or is there a point where you just say, okay, that's enough. I'm not forgiving you anymore. You keep doing it and I'm not going to go there again. Christ could have said, yes, Peter, you're right, seven times, or he could have said ten times, or he said, you know, on the outside, maybe 14 times, and that's it. But that's not what Christ said, is it? Let's continue reading there, verse 22. I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Literally, that would be 490 times. 
That's a lot of forgiveness. Could we, could we come anywhere near that to forgive that often? Of course, Christ's, what he, Christ's meaning in that was you forgive indefinitely. You keep forgiving. That's the mind of Christ. That's the heart of Christ on the issue. Christ then launches into a parable that you're very familiar with. This is the parable of the unforgiving servant. Let's continue in verse 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. These people owed him money. And he said, okay, that's enough. It's time to pay up. Verse 24. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But he was not able to pay as his master had commanded. Um, because he was not able to pay, he was to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and the payment made. And the servant fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me. I will pay you all. We'll find out momentarily that would have been impossible. Verse 27, the master of the servant was moved with compassion, feeling from his gut and his heart. He felt for this person. He saw the predicament they were in. He saw this tearing this person apart. And he realized that separating the family and selling his wife and kids was not the answer. It was only hurtful. This guy would never pay back the debt. And he had compassion. And he changed it. He forgave the debt. What kind of debt is this, brethren? If you've got a pencil or a pen or taking notes, you might want to write this down. Um, a talent, actually a, a denarius, one denarius, as we'll see in a moment, is one day's, the equivalent of one day's wages. And we'll find out that this guy had another person who owed him a hundred denarii. About a hundred days wages. That's a third of a year's salary almost. That's a lot of money. How many denarii are in a talent? About 6,000 denarii are in a talent, according to the New King James Study Bible. 6,000 denarii in one talent. This guy owed 10,000 talents. What does that mean? That means he owed the equivalent of roughly 60 million days wages. 60 million days wages. Let's put that in real terms. That's at six, working at six days a week. That's 100, over 192,000 years salary. These numbers are just ridiculously large, but this is what it is. 192,000 years salary. You can't pay that back. It's impossible. And so when we look at this next guy who owed him money, who he would not forgive, yeah, he may have owed him a hundred days wages, brethren, but that's one ten thousandth of what he owed the king. And so we look down on here and we know the rest of the story. He goes to this other guy who owes him what really is a pittance in comparison, grabs him by the throat, shakes him. The guy can't pay him back, so he throws him into debtor's prison um, along with his family. And the other servants hear about it, and they go tell the king. And the king says, this is ridiculous. Look at I forgave you. You can't even give this little forgiveness? You can't have compassion just a little bit? And so this individual was also thrown 
into prison. Verse 35 says, So my heavenly Father will also do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. We know that in this parable, the master is depictive of God and Jesus Christ, the one who forgave the unforgivable. And the point is, if Christ can forgive us our trespasses, we've got to be able and willing to forgive others their trespasses. How willing, brethren, are we to forgive others their trespasses? How willing are we to have compassion on others who may owe us? Maybe they owe us money. Maybe they owe us somebody else or something else. Do we have the compassion within to be patient? The king in this example had so much compassion, he forgave all of the debt without expectation of anything in return. That's the compassion that God wants us to have. That's the compassion He's called you and me to develop as His first fruits. That kind of compassion. Can we look on humanity around us today who's falling short? And can we make up the difference? Can we long for them to have relief? We see homes that have been foreclosed on. We see people losing their jobs. We see people making, really, frankly, dumb financial decisions and suffer for it. Can we have compassion on them and hope for a time when they don't have to suffer anymore, when the kingdom of God will be here in Leviticus 25 and the tithing principles and the land Sabbath principles and the seven-year and jubilee cycle principles will be in place? when debts will ultimately be forgiven. What kind of compassion do we have with people who owe us? Number four, question. <clears throat> How do we feel about those with physical infirmities or those who suffer the death of loved ones? Not even us. How do we feel about these individuals? Let's look at a, a few examples. Matthew 20. Matthew chapter 20, and let's look at, excuse me, yes, that's right, Matthew 20, verse 30. <clears throat> You're familiar with the example here, but let's look at what Christ is talking about. Matthew 20, verse 30, And behold, two blind men sitting on the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Have mercy on us, O Lord, Son of David! Verse 31, but the multitude warned them that they should be quiet. You think about this happening. Here's these two blind guys. The, the, the multitude would have known them. They were sort of fixtures in the community. Maybe they were perceived to always have a handout. Many in the multitude realized Christ was definitely a prophet. Some of them recognized he was the Messiah. And they're thinking, don't bother this guy with, with what your piddly little wishes and wills are for yourselves. We see the same example, the same perspective given by the 12 apostles when little children were brought to Jesus Christ. And they said, don't bring these kids. They're just children. Adults are who really matters. <clears throat> anyway, um, multitude warned them they should be quiet when they cried out all the more, saying, have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So, verse 32, Jesus 
stood still and he called them and he said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be open. What did Jesus do? Jesus had compassion. The word here means he felt from his bowels for them. He empathized for them and he cared so much he wanted to change what was hurting them. This wasn't just a boom, I'm going to touch your your eyes and you're going to be healed. This was, he felt for them and he wanted to heal them. And so he did. He reached out, he touched their eyes and immediately their eyes were open. They received their sight and they followed him. Let's look at another example. Brethren, do we have that kind of compassion when we see people suffering? That we we feel from our bowels, from the depths of our heart, what they're suffering. And we yearn to be able to heal. Luke chapter 7. Different gospel. Writer. Another situation here. Luke chapter 7. Brethren, think about this. This is an interesting one. And again, let's dig in and let's ponder this. Luke chapter 7, verse 12. And when he came near the gate of the city, this is the widow at Nain situation, behold, a dead man was being brought out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. How many funeral processions have each of us seen in our lives? How many funeral processions? Funerals happen every day, don't they? People die every day. Jesus Christ made humanity human. He made us mortal. He made us to live and then to die. And in fact, he said it's appointed for all once to die. Then after that is the resurrection. How many funerals had Christ seen by this point in his life? Hundreds, thousands perhaps, He was probably involved in burying his own father, Joseph, his his stepdad. It was just part of life. Death is part of life. Christ knew that. Yet here comes a funeral procession. He sees people suffering. He knows the history of this woman, just like he knew the history of the, the woman by the well and the men she'd been married to and the one she was living with who was no longer married to. He knew this woman was alone. Her husband had already died. She may have been completely alone. This could have been her last living relative. It's her boy who was dead and she was suffering. Her heart was broken. And what does it say? Verse 13, the Lord saw her and he had compassion on her. He felt it from his bowels. He hurt with her. He saw the suffering. He saw the sting of death that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4. Then he said to her, do not weep. And he came and he touched the open coffin and those who were carrying him stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And so he was dead set up and began to talk, to speak. And then he presented him, Christ presented him to his mother. Christ didn't have to stop a funeral procession. He could have been respectful, hung his head, let them pass, and gone on. In fact, in previous times, he said to the disciples, let the dead bury the dead. This is something that happens, yet 
Think about the compassion he had. Brethren, when we see a funeral procession, what do we think? Do we have compassion like Christ would? Do we see that line of people or that line of cars and think, wow, all of those people are suffering over the loss of this person? I wish I could stop their suffering. I can't wait until death is swallowed up in victory. That's the perspective Christ wants us to develop. Yet, in this world where we see so much of it, we can become callous to death. When we see the death tolls from COVID-19, over 100,000 here in the United States now, do we stop and think about what's behind the statistics and realize that every one of those deaths affected not only the human being who died, but the people that love that person. Almost half of the deaths from COVID-19 in this country have happened in nursing homes. These people have died alone. In fact, they're predicting a lot more deaths, not because of COVID-19 in nursing homes, but because of people who have dementia who are locked in nursing homes who don't have contact with their families anymore, who are going to die because of the lack of contact. We learned this from some of the research that was done in the Holocaust on babies, where babies were fed and left alone. They weren't touched, they weren't talked to, and they died because they weren't loved. We need touch as human beings. We need interaction. We need to be told we're loved. We need to be cared for. Do we have compassion when we see the numbers? Do we stop and say, wait a second, every one of these numbers represents a person in a family who are hurting? Something to meditate on and think about. John 11. <clears throat> I want to look at another example. Brethren, you know this next example. But let's let it come to life and see who this amazing Messiah was who was on the earth. Let's learn from him in the example he set. John 11 talks about the death and the resurrection of Lazarus. And you're familiar with the story. Jesus Christ was informed that Lazarus had died. And what did he do? He didn't hurry to come to Mary and Martha. He waited. He delayed. He let Lazarus die. He let him lie in the grave for three days. And then he showed up. And brethren, this is important. Christ showed up knowing that he would resurrect Lazarus. He knew Lazarus was in the grave, but it would be just a short period of time and he would come out. Christ knew this. And he confronts Martha first. She meets him crying. And then she goes and gets Mary and Mary comes out. And that's where we're going to pick up the story. John chapter 11, verse 32. <clears throat> John 11. Verse 32, and before we begin, just remember, Christ had friends, physical friends, close friends when he was on the earth. Twelve of them were his disciples. He was close to them. We think about Peter, and he spent time in Peter's home with Peter's wife and Peter's mother-in-law. Likely close friends. We know that Lazarus and Mary and Martha were very close friends of his. In fact, it says he loved Lazarus. He would have loved the young ladies as well. As you think about Mary here, think about her as an individual, a woman, young lady, um, who was probably about the age of Christ, maybe about 30 years old in her prime. 
so to speak. And let's look at what, sh- what happened here. <clears throat> John 11, verse 32. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now we can read over that, but let's not. Let's stop. Let's look at the picture here. Christ comes into town. He's the Messiah and Mary knows it. She respects him. She's a woman who sat at his feet many, many times for probably dozens or hundreds of hours being taught by him, humbling herself before him. She comes to him as the Messiah, the Savior. She knows the power he possesses. She saw the miracles and heard of them. And she comes to him and she throws herself down in a heap at his feet, emotionally distraught. Her brothers just died early in his life. And she throws herself down and says, if you'd only been here, Lazarus would be alive. Why weren't you here? Imagine the situation, brethren. Think about what Christ was feeling. Let's continue here. Verse 33, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, what did he do? He didn't say, don't worry. He's going to be resurrected in just a few minutes. Get up, have a smile. God's in charge. He groaned in the spirit. Have you ever done that? You see people suffering. You get this big lump in your throat and it it hurts to watch. Christ groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, and Jesus wept shortest verse in the bible he wept the messiah who would raise her in a couple of minutes and or raise him in a couple of minutes and he knew it cried he had compassion from his bowels he hurt for them because they were hurting and they said see how he loved him And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? And then Jesus again, verse 38, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. Likely with tears in his eyes still, it was a cave and a stone lay against it. And he said, take away the stone. Brethren, do you see the compassion of Christ? He hurt because others were suffering. Are we willing to hurt when we see others suffering? Physically, mentally, emotionally. Let's look at another question here. Number five, how do we feel about those who have wronged or disrespected us? How do we feel about those who've wronged us or disrespected us? Sometimes it's even family who's wronged and disrespected us. Luke chapter 15. You know, we look around. Luke 15. Turn there with me, please. 
We look around society today, and in just the last couple of weeks, we've seen people hurt and wronged and disrespected. We've seen atrocities happen again in this country. We've seen, some of you have seen the videos of George Floyd with a policeman kneeling on his neck and a few watching on. It seems like this, this lack of humanity, this lack of caring for human life. It's, it's prophesied. If you read First Timothy chapter three, excuse me, Second Timothy chapter three, verses one through about four, we see Paul prophesying about what the end of the age is going to be like when people don't care anymore about each other. Do we have compassion for this kind of suffering? Yes, maybe this individual had a criminal record and had done some bad things, but brethren, don't all we? Don't we all have a criminal record? In a sense, haven't we all broken the law, especially the law of God? What did Christ say to the Pharisees who found the woman and caught in the act of adultery? Okay, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. Do we have compassion on the flip side for the police officers who've been killed in retribution? For the shopkeepers in these communities whose businesses have been destroyed? Because people are angry. Brethren, we should be able to. We are first fruits. We're the elect of God. We should be able to be above this all, looking down at it from God's perspective through His eyes. We should be able to have compassion on everybody involved who's suffering. It's not going to be fixed in this world. This is Satan's world. And any of man's attempts will fail. They have to fail. Or we don't need a Messiah. But we should be able to look down and have compassion. We should hurt inside for humanity. Because they try and find the way, but they can't do it. Let's look at Luke 15. Let's look at Luke 15. And we're going to take a look at a parable that you know, the parable of the prodigal son. But let's look at it from a perspective, a deeper perspective than sometimes we do. We'll break in here in a minute, but remember the situation. You've got a wealthy father, and one of his sons comes to him one day and he says, Dad, this is essentially what he says, Dad, I know I'm going to inherit all of your stuff when you die, or half of it. I don't want to wait till you're dead, Dad, and I'm old. Give it to me now so I can enjoy it. That's arrogant. That's ornery. That's so disrespectful. Could you imagine as a parent having your child come to you and say, I don't want to wait till you're dead. Give it to me now. <laughs> That's selfish. That's satanic. But what did the father do? He gave it to him, didn't he? He gave him his inheritance. You know, we don't know how much money it was. It could have been the equivalent of millions of dollars today. What did he do? He went and he blew it on all kinds of things. Wine, women, song. He may have been gambling it away. He was not in contact with the family for possibly years. We don't see the contact there. We don't even see him saying thank you. We just say, see him getting the money and heading out of town and doing his own thing. And finally, he comes to his senses as he's feeding hogs, feeding the pigs, 
and envying the slop that they're eating. And he says, you know, if I would go home, I could be treated better as a servant in my father's house. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Luke 15. And let's look at verse 20. Verse 20, the, the young man, maybe older at this point, comes to his senses. He heads home. He's walking to the house possibly across a field, could have been hundreds of yards away. It was too far for his face to be seen. But, you know, as a parent, you can tell who your kids are by the way they walk, by the way they hold their head, by their shape, by the way they swing their arms. Parents pay attention to these things. And the father saw him. As he rose, he came to his father, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. And he had compassion. The reaction of the father was not, how dare this boy come back? That thankless child took all my things, didn't bother to send me a letter to tell me he was even alive. The father saw him. His clothes, no doubt, were tattered. He may or may not have had shoes on. He probably stunk. Remember, he's working with hogs. His father saw him a long way off. And what did he do? He had compassion. He felt it from his heart, from his bowels. He'd been hurting for his son, praying, no doubt, that his son would come to his senses, come back, be alive. And what did he do? We heard about it in the sermonette with Abraham. He didn't walk to his son. He didn't sit down and say, okay, boy, come to me and get down on your knees and you ask for forgiveness. No, the father, the master of the house, ran to his son. He ran to him. He put his arms around his neck and he kissed him. The father had already forgiven him. Brethren, how do we treat people who mistreat us? How do we feel about people who mistreat us? If they had a change of heart, would we be in a place to have compassion to go to them and hug them and say, it's going to be okay. Jesus Christ died so you can be forgiven and I forgive you. Brethren, think about the trauma we've seen in, in this country in the last several weeks. Could we have compassion on anyone or everyone who's been involved in these difficult times? Could we? We should, shouldn't we? Christ would. This Father gives us an incredible example. We need to yearn. We need to, from our bowels, hurt for people who are hurting and suffering mentally, emotionally, physically. We're first fruits. We're the elect of God. We have to be developing this perspective, brethren, because we're going to work with people who live through the tribulation, some of whom are murderers, and some of them who may have murdered tens of thousands of people. We've got to have compassion because, brethren, dead people can't repent, can they? You've got to be alive to repent. We've got to be willing and able to hold out our hands and encourage and say this is not the end.
How do we feel about those who have wronged or disrespected of disrespected us, even if they're family? Can we have compassion for them? One more question. How do we feel about those who have committed murder but see their actions as right or supporting the cause? Even if it's a direct attack on God. Brethren, you've seen murderers on television. You're aware of murderers in the modern day and in the history of humanity. Even secular history outside the Bible. When you're made a member of the family of God, can you forgive them? Will you be able to forgive them? What if you have the opportunity to work with Pontius Pilate, the man who condemned Christ to death? What about Judas as he's resurrected? What about Hitler? What about you fill in the blanks? Could we forgive these people? Let's look at another scripture here, Matthew 23. Can we forgive a murderer? Can you forgive a murderer? Can I forgive a murderer? Is there such a kind of murder that we couldn't forgive? Let's look at the example of Christ. This is powerful medicine, brethren, so to speak. Powerful examples of the Messiah here showing us how to live. Brethren, this is the mind of Christ he wants us to put on. This is the heart of Christ he wants us to develop. Matthew chapter 23. You'll remember, Matthew 23, Christ is lambasting the Pharisees, calling them brood of vipers, calling them hypocrites over and over again. But let's watch what happens here. Matthew chapter 23, verse 31. He says, therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves, Matthew 23, 31, that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Sons of those who murdered the prophets, your descendants. Think, think back to what happened in the times of the prophets. God sent prophets. God sent prophets. The Lord, the eternal, the one who became Christ, sent these prophets to ancient nations of Israel and Judah time and time again. And he, he prodded them. He accused them. He almost begged them, stop sinning. Give up your pagan ways. Come back to me. Brethren, these were nations that God divorced spiritually. And yet when we read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel, we see a God who's looking at these divorced nations saying, literally, I may have divorced you, but if You'll repent and come back to me. I will take you back. These were nations and kings that killed those prophets, literally, that God sent to them. Think about the example of the parable that Jesus Christ told about the landowner who went to a far country and he leased his land. And when it was harvest time, he sent back servants to get some of the percentage of the land. And every time he sent servants back... The guys who leased the land, they were crooks. They were bad people. They killed the servants. Finally, he sent his own son to get the money that was owed him. It was rightfully his. It was his land. And they killed his son, depictive of Christ. God sent prophets to help his people, to save his people. Mr. Weston recently went through a Bible study on Jeremiah, and we studied that again. The book of Lamentations, brethren is a lament 
of through Jeremiah's pen, but it's God's lament over his declining nation of Judah and the, the defunct nation of Israel. God is lamenting. He's hurting. He's having compassion for these people who are hurting themselves through their own sins. Let's, let's read here now then. He says, you yourselves are witnesses against yourselves that you're sons of those who murdered the prophets. These are the Pharisees. <laughs> They're the history of Judah. Fill up. Then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? You're deserving it. You've killed my servants who I sent to save you. Verse 34. Therefore, indeed, I sent you the prophets, wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify. And this happened later. All of the twelve were martyred except John. Some sawn asunder, as we read. One of them crucified apparently upside down. Some of you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That's what they did to Paul. Verse 35, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth. From the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, this is the prophet, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon you and your generation. He's saying you've brought it on yourselves. Your time is coming. You're going to get what is coming to you. But do you think Christ was saying that with a vindictive spirit? Do you think he really meant, yeah, you're going to get what comes to you? Or was there another perspective? We can know the answer to that. You know how? Let's read the next verse. Verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets. Christ is lamenting here. We see compassion coming out of him for a people who were hurting themselves. They were so stubborn. And they were so deceived that they rebuked the prophets God sent to save them. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Christ is lamenting. He's looking out at Jerusalem and these people and the Pharisees and saying... <laughs> So many times over history. And brethren, that history, in that history, they were offering their sons and daughters to pagan gods and burning them in fire and putting them in the foundation stones of buildings. They had temple prostitution. They were killing the prophets. They were doing all kinds of abominations. And Christ is saying, looking back, I, how many times I wanted to just bring you into my arms and say, stop. Let me help you. There's a better way. Please. Brethren, do we have that kind of compassion in us when we look at society around us? When we see the suffering on all sides of issues? When we see even our leaders who are aimless, 
They don't know the right way. They don't know, in a sense, their right hand from their left. They're trying to make good, and they can't do it for trying. Do we look at them and have compassion and say, I wish we could help you. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Bring your kingdom. Bring peace to Jerusalem. Brethren, Christ wants His mind to be in us. We read that as we began. He wants us to put on His mind, His way of thinking, His way of feeling for humanity. In Romans 5, verse 8, we're reminded that Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. You know, when we look around the world, it's easy from a human perspective. I get this. I'm there too. I have flesh. For all of us, I think it's easy in a way to look at sinners in the world and say they don't deserve to be forgiven. They deserve punishment. But Christ died for them while they were yet sinners, just like He died for you and me while we were yet sinners. Every single one of us, brethren, is guilty of the blood of Jesus Christ. Our sin killed Him. And yet He died for us, knowing that it would. Because He so loved the world. And the Father did. That He gave His only begotten Son. So that one day, everyone can come to Him and be forgiven. Brethren, all humanity is made in the image of God. Every single one. Even those who are not called yet. Even the ones who hate God are made in His image and they have the potential to become full members of the family of God. 1 John 3, 17. <clears throat> Just about done. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Physical goods, brethren, we have the truth. We have to share it. If we don't, we're shutting up our heart. Mr. Ames, in the sermon I mentioned at the beginning, Ten Ways to Love One Another, as he talked about compassion, made the following comment. He said, we need to be able to lay down our life for others. And we must not shut up our heart. Godly compassion never shuts up a heart, regardless of what others do. We see beyond it. We see the calling that humanity has. We see the imperfection, yes, but we remember the imperfection we have and how God and Christ have forgiven us. Brethren, many have suffered greatly in this life, and they've developed a hard shell because of it to protect their hearts so they'll never hurt again. God doesn't want us to have that hard shell. He doesn't want us to have a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh to feel for people, to be able to feel from our bowels, from the inside of our heart, what people are suffering and to want to change it. God wants us to develop compassion like His Son has. We live in a society today, brethren, where the people are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing in so many ways. This is a society, too, though, where the love of many is growing cold, and we see it all around us. We can't let our love grow cold. We've been called to be first fruits, to develop God's perfect righteous character, to learn to think and act and even feel as Christ 
does and always has. As we look around the world today and even around our families, we must be able to love and have concern for those who are suffering, hurting, and who are in need of relief, even if they've brought it upon themselves. We must have the compassion to see inside the statistics that we hear. We must work to avoid allowing the God of this world, Satan, to convince us to harden our hearts against some, against human beings made in the image of God with the potential to also become full members of his family. Brethren, Satan's is the source of a lack of compassion. He's influenced society into fostering and developing people like him, devoid of love and empathy and compassion. Brethren, as we pray about it, as we look around us and we realize how people have come to their suffering through Satan's deception, as we work even harder to see the suffering and even the callousness callousness of humanity from God's perspective, we can develop even more Christ-like compassion, the sympathetic consciousness of others' distress, together with a desire to alleviate it. Brethren, Christ and God the Father are full of compassion, as we've reviewed today. And they've extended that compassion to each of us. And they continue to do it on a regular basis. Christ gave us the perfect example to follow as we work to see how, when, and why we must develop and practice godly compassion. I encourage you, brethren. I encourage all of us. Let's continue purposefully working hard to develop even more of the compassion of Christ. We are the first fruits. We are God's elect. We are called to change the world and the kingdom of God. We are called to develop the character, the perspective, and the mind of Christ now. And we're called to develop now, today, the compassion of Jesus Christ.